Today's podcast is brought to you by Eggshell Light Company. For over 45 years, Eggshell Light Company has been the go-to specialty shop handling the lighting needs for all that grace the shores of beautiful Hawaii. Combining the artistic methods of the theater with the speed and efficiency of the musical touring industry, they have pioneered event lighting throughout the Hawaiian Islands. They specialize in supply of top shelf equipment and designers for broadcast concerts, corporate, and special events. From the smallest weddings to televised concerts and the largest corporate clients, they know this is your most important event. It is their goal to make sure you feel that way. Aloha from Eggshell Light Company. Welcome everyone to another episode of LD at Large podcast. My name is Chris Lose. I am the designer relations developer at Ayrton Lighting, as well as columnist for PLSN Magazine. You're all enjoying listening and reading. I'm in a good spot today. Uh, just kind of watching my hair grow because I haven't been able to book a hair haircut for quite some time. So it's getting very long and, and luxurious. It makes me very happy. One of the reasons I started this podcast during the pandemic to kind of take a moment to archive where we're at in the industry, reach out to all the designers and producers and creatives that are sitting at home right now. It's just just a rare time in our industry that I'm able to reach out to this many people and have this many conversations and be able to find the time to do it. And so it's been a really good way to archive some people's unique philosophies, kind of talk to some of the big dogs who've been in it for a long time and kind of share some of their wisdom to some of the young kids. And then I've also had the luxury of reaching out to some young kids who would normally be flying around the world working 30 hour days. It's really good to make time to reach out to these people and log what's going on because we don't usually have this amount of free time or this luxury. So today I'm going to reach out to somebody who had a very similar idea. He's had something going on in his head for basically his entire career. He's been looking at bar napkin designs. He's been uh, coming up with lots of crazy ideas in the back room of buses and then using the best tools we had available over the centuries or the decades rather, to explain what's going on in our little monkey brains to somebody else and then try and convince them that what they have what they've written down on a bar napkin deserves funding. Please welcome Dizzy Gosnell. He is a production director at Bandit Lights. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really look forward to explaining what you're doing to my audience. Hi there, Chris. So I'm going to, I'll spill the beans a little bit. Dizzy has been taking a bunch of old bar napkin designs from Iron Maiden, from ACDC, from all of these major tours of the 1980s and basically digitizing them for archival purposes. Would you say that's a good, uh, a good explanation of what you've been up to? Yeah, I wanted to put them because they were never done in 3D. CAD didn't exist back then. It may have done for Ford and General Motors, but for little guys like us, it it didn't exist back in the early 80s. So we drew one 2D plot plan view, and that was it. And I've got no idea where those plan view plots ended up. There may be one or two kicking around. So I thought, you know, from from memory, most of it, because all of these ones were tours that I was on. So I've spent a lot of time, sometimes uh, 12, 15 months, looking at this damn thing every day. 
um, and with memory jogging with the couple of photographs that are around of some of these rigs. Some of the tours, like ACDC ones, I found up four good photographs for a whole nine-month tour online. And I never took any back then. And so it was like, God, is that it? So I thought, you know, I'm going to put this down because you know, newer people and what we call the, the kids today <laughs> who look at aircraft series splitters and go, what's that? And we go, oh, yeah, we used to have 40 of them back on journey. <laughs> um, <laughs> I thought, you know, I'll put it down for posterity and also leaving out scenery because sometimes things are hidden a lot with drapes and scenery and PAs and flats and all that stuff. So I thought I just wanted to concentrate on the flat stage, no backline, and just put the lighting rig up there. So in 3D, so we can explore it, revolve around it, and just examine it. Because there was a lot of good stuff that went on there, which changed how the business could run. Wow. There is a lot to unpack there, and I have so many questions. <laughs> uh, the first thing I want to kind of explore is that once a plot was done – let's say it's created over a few drinks at a bar and it's put down on a napkin. What was the next step back then? Did you, uh, was it uh, pen and paper or was there even, could you even plot them when you started? No, there was no plotters there. I remember we went to a couple of like a tele stage, Mike Crisp at TAS, TAS stage as it was, Telestage, who made the triangle trussing that we used on uh, on Maiden for the grid work. I remember him doing some weight calculations on how we were going to hang the pods underneath the grid on Power Slave, and he actually printed out a copy just on letter-sized paper, but he printed out a plot, plan view plot, in pseudo 3D on a dot matrix printer. It took like 25 minutes, which was pretty <laughs> quick back then. To, to, for the thing to, for AutoCAD to calc out. And then we came back with this plan view plot and it had all the diagonals and stuff and the lugs in the telescope. Whoa, this is awesome. Um, because everything else up to then was we didn't really have trussing. We just had a rectangle and with a load of six lamp bars inside the rectangle. And that was pretty much as high tech as we ever got. You know, a seven foot six by 30 inch block for, for a pre rig with two six bars in there and a little. X and an O for where the soccer pecs was going to be, so you knew where the cable was going to go, and that was pretty much it. And that would do your rigging plot as well, if you had one. <laughs> I am just old enough, I can still remember the sound of a dot matrix printer. Oh, the screaming noise. What would really chew me off was sometimes you, you just get it going, and AutoCAD used to, the 3D stuff, used to take sometimes hours to calculate out to to hide lines and stuff to print out and then someone would call on the phone and then before cordless phones and you either had to say that can i call you back or because i can't hear a damn thing on the phone if that got matrix <laughs> screaming in my other ear and they couldn't hear anything either under this like, meep, meep, meep noise and it would just pause and then you go okay well i was gonna say meh, meh. <laughs> uh, people don't understand how easy it is with the quiet printers that we got now we just take for granted and no thermal fax machines and all that junk <laughs> yeah and once that printed out that i mean that was gold because that's how you yep. that's how you took that information from one person to another there was no email there was no yep. 
folding it up into a tight little thing. You had to be yeah. in person and show it to them. Or zooming in, zooming in on the plot on your phone. Forget about that. I mean, we, we just wait for the FedEx guy. Oh, good. We got the plot in the triangular tubes from FedEx. <laughs> and if he didn't show up, then you as you wait another day for the thing because oh, I never got the FedEx last night to send it off. Or they cut it up in strips you know, and put it through the fax machine in big long three foot long strips, which then you take together at your end. Oh wow. <sighs> Yeah. Wow, we've then, come a long way. Oh, yeah. That's Big a long time. way. So it'd be, oh, man, it's really tough. Go, really? No, I don't think so. <laughs> and you had to order the gel strings like a month ahead of time, you know? So you had to know what your colors were going to be four weeks out. Not just, well, I'll do it when I get to rehearsals. That nah, you can't. <laughs> You've got to plan out the patch, plan out where your lamps are going, your gels, all your fingers and your fans and all your washes and looks had to be worked out on paper before you started building it. The amount of forethought that was necessary yeah. then is tenfold what is it, what it is now. Like we can do an advance three, four days in advance from the yeah. road in the back of the bus. Even in the bunk, we can still be advancing a show. Exactly. Yeah. Which we don't, we don't condone really, but it happens. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they usually uh, alcohol in juice. Oh, I think I have four front trusses and some floor stuff. No, no. <laughs> but it's, um, yeah, I mean, it got legit in a hurry in the 90s. It got really legit. But the 80s, we were just still writing the rules. I mean, the first generation of Richard Hartman and George Fairbanks, Arriga at Ocean State, and Jake Berry with his, like, have, give me another truck and I'll save you money approach, which Jake had. That was a rule breaker because up till then, you stuffed a truck absolutely jammed tight. If you couldn't put a roof rack on the damn thing, if you had two more cases. But then it took you four hours to load the truck. And then if you get another truck, then you could whiz the stiff stuff out and increase your radius between the next this and the next show. And Jake figured that out spend a bit more money for another truck and you can save money. And it took Jake years for accountants to actually get that you'd spend another five grand on a truck and you could save 20. Go, what? No, impossible. Yeah. Union overtime, another show that you could have to turn down tomorrow because you can't get to it. So all that kind of stuff, you know, and six lamp bars and pre-rig and aluminum and soccer picks and, that was the golden days in the 1980s onwards. That's when all that stuff really started to fast track in. High density dimming. Eric's all the ham racks, Avalite's racks in England. These are all, all the it. things that we just take for granted. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Socopex, that was a game changer, big time, because you plug in one connector instead of six. So you got a six to one saving right there in time. And if you've got 200 lamps, which is a big rig back then, you know, you're looking at you know, 20 connections instead of 200. <laughs> it's big. And 200 and potential mistakes. <laughs> these are all the things that had to be learned the hard way, too. Yep. Somebody had to be like, there has to be a better way to do this. And then I can only imagine 50% of the team was like, no, this is the best way it can be done. This is the way we've always done it. And then there's the, the other 50% like, no, there has to be a better way. Well, it was the big shows. I mean, the Scorpions of Van Halen's, Eric Pierce with Van, with, uh, Van Halen and a few other shows of the he, he, Who and uh, Hall and Oaks back in the day when they had big shows in excess. 
all those um, and the metal shows, Scorpions, Maiden, ACDC, Priest, all the big metal shows that were going out for 12-month tours could actually fund a lot of this R&D. And it was R&D. And Aluminum Parkan was a game changer in England when Thomas came out with that. Because it was steel Altman cans before that and steel trussing. So we went to aluminum truss and aluminum power cans. That meant we could actually hang stuff off the roof without breaking the roof. So because everything was R&D, every single rental house had their own unique proprietary systems too. You couldn't, you couldn't do a lot of cross rental. A lot at that time. Yeah. That was kind of how it was. In the late 70s, there were standards coming up, and especially talking from England, because that's where I started off. There was an eight-lamp standard, so you could have an eight-lamp bar and eight-lamp frame, and then they had still using 19-pin soccer picks, but they only had um, two mechanical grounds, so one mechanical ground per four lights. But then the GLC in London said, no, you've got to have one electrical ground per circuit so you couldn't have live neutral live neutral and then a common ground where you just bond it through the bar they said if you paint it or if the things the lamps loose it's not a good enough earth connection so you had to have an electrical ground for every single lamp and that changed pretty much overnight and went from eight lamps to six lamp standard and that's pretty much how it stayed and that was primarily um, the limitation of Socopex, which is the best option connector at the time. It was the easiest available, easiest to work, cheaper. There was Litton, which LSD used to use, military spec, great connector, but really small and kind of hard to work with and expensive and a lot of time lag. And people generally kind of like the Socopex connector. I mean, that was... And it just stuck. But it was kind of like a VHS Betamax thing with various multi-pins. You know, you were back, you were gambling on which one was going to be the winner. Two sub-rent in and sub-rent out. And that was that was a good part of it. No. That made it very difficult to make any sort of large purchases because you don't know if it's if you're gonna be the winner there. If you if you have yeah. a bunch of eight circuit socos, you they're dead. Yeah, well, the cable was okay. It was what you plugged it into at the other end. It just had pin to pin on the cable still, but the but the lamp bars. And I know there was shenanigans going on with with other uh, English lighting companies at the time who should be nameless. But there was a few of them who went from eight lamp standard to six lamp standard overnight and sold all the eight lamp and eight bar stuff to their competitor, and then. They shelved all that, and they said, "Oh no, it's illegal now. I can't use that." <laughs> uh, so, what was it like touring around Europe? Then, could you take the same rig from from Italy to the UK and back? Uh, in theory, yes. In practice, often no. Uh, once, you're, and even in England, <laughs> even in England, you had some. We had some shaky gigs that couldn't have had like De Montfort Hall. They kept downrating the beams there. Newcastle City Hall. They didn't really downrate the or Leicester, I remember, did a month before we got there on one tour. They, uh, the engineers had downrated the beams from one ton of piece to half ton of piece. We go, crap, man. We've got the rig hasn't gotten any lighter. And now we've got no, we advanced it and it was good. And now it's not. So we had to get like, we did a bit of begging with the city engineer and we got it up. 
and said, it's not going to snow tonight, right? I said, no, 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 all right, it's summertime. So I said, well, we use your snow loading. Can we get away with that? <laughs> and that's how we did. But <laughs> And there were beams that were getting bent by some American acts that were coming over here with, like, people, that, you know, big, tall, blonde-haired uh, singers, band, American bands from L.A. that had a big, tall, loud mouth. Yeah, well, they bent some roofs in England big time. So... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, sometimes, because we didn't really calc what the rig was going to be, you kind of do a thing where I think the rig's going to be 25,000 pounds. But working out the individual point loads, that didn't happen at all for most of the 80s, really, that I'm aware of. I think it's human nature. The best example of that is my garage. If I have a one-car garage, I'm going to fill it with one car's worth of stuff. If yeah. I have a two-car garage, I'm going to fill it with two cars worth of stuff. Yeah. Same thing with a with an arena. If an arena is designed for a thousand pounds, I'm going to put one thousand five hundred pounds worth of stuff in there. Yeah. Until the German engineers say, "No, you can only put three hundred kilograms on this." All right, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the, that's always the way. They will be the first ones to complain. Won't they? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's many production managers when it comes to production rehearsals that say, you know, you can get it done in three days when, you know, your pin patch programming that we used to do in the old days. Yeah, you can get it done in three days. I really like five. If we gave you two weeks, you'd take two weeks. You got three days. All right. There, there were many tours that we did where we did, didn't have a production day loaded or, pro, or rehearsals at all for big multi-month tours. You went in maybe an hour early just so the rigger could figure out where the chalk was going to go. And, yeah, we went in blind. That happened, I, I can remember, six tours that started out like that, big ones, too. With, we just went in blind. You had and to figure that your, your prep and everything was, th- was that day. You prepped, yep. you loaded in everything that day. Yep. And then you cursed a guy. The shop just sent had- everything they had, and they said, here, sort it out. Well, kind of, yeah, because you didn't fly anything up because a lot of the buildings we had were our warehouses with 12-foot-high roofs. You couldn't fly anything up. So, yeah, and then you cursed the guy who put all the span sets underneath all the forward feeder because <laughs> you only needed 20-foot of feeder for that particular show and you had 100-footers in the case still. Where are the span sets? Oh, yeah, I put them in the bottom of that first feeder trunk. Oh, you moron. <laughs> so you had to haul out all the furrow to get to your span sets to start hanging the rig. <laughs> and we used a lot of forward in those days because, you know, four or five Demoracks, 72 ways, completely full, was not at all a big rig back then. Right. And that was 2K per channel too. So it was 144K per, per Demorac capacity. We could chomp through some furrow there on the show. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want you to date yourself but were you doing rigs before we decided that it would be smart to flip motors over and use them upside down no i wasn't in that generation no that was george fairbanks so he, he was the i think he was the guy that started that running them up inverted uh-huh and uh yeah people thought he was nuts people at cm and everyone thought you, you can't do that it's that tons of ton it doesn't matter which way up the hook is <laughs> yeah you know, it's still got to go round. It's just got to still got to hold itself and pick itself up. Yeah. So. I would have loved to have been there that day to just say, hey, you know, if we just flip these upside down, we can yep. save ourselves thousands of dollars. Yeah. And look at him like, you're a madman. Let's do it. 
<laughs> and the fact that we call it motors, you know, when the motors are up now is industrial, it's like it's an anomaly. Oh, you're going to hang this rig industrial? Oh, man, really? <laughs> and the, up, the upriggers hate that, you know, because they're pulling up 80-foot chains and the motor and the bag, and then it gets disconnected, and you've got to repel down to reconnect. Oh, just a <clears> – which is yeah. why – <laughs> and that was one of the reasons why we came up with the grid for the Power Slave Tour on Maiden. Was, that was one of the many reasons. Well, fill me the, in. The big one, well, the big one is that Steve Harris and Rod Smallwood, Steve Harris with Maiden, the bass players, is, he started the band. And Rod Smallwood, their MO was, especially for this World Slavery Tour, they've done a, we've done a couple of... Uh, well, we've done the Killers Tour in 82 and then the World Peace Tour in 83, which got a bit bigger and a bit bigger, primarily aircraft, but a lot of truss, cable, lamps, so it's you know, still a heavy thing. They wanted to start moving the trusses around and the triangular pods and stuff that Dave likes to design. And the venues that we were playing in Europe, maybe 50% of them, if I'm being generous, you could actually fly the system out. So it would be a, it would be a ground support. <clears throat> well, Steve Harris, Harris totally, I mean, I know that people like Tobias Forge with Ghost now have the same outlook. We don't want people to have a lesser than show because they're, they're walking up to a lesser than building. So Steve Harris's MO was absolutely, like, why should they have half a show just because they happen to be doing this gig in Poland or in a dodgy gymnasium in the south of France that wasn't meant for rock and roll? So I want them to have, he said, and Rod Smallwood, the manager, said, yep, I want them to have the, the full show. Make it happen. So Ronan Wilson, the boss of Meteor Lights, and we were doing the lighting then. Um, we, okay, we want to make this thing happen, however we can make it happen, within reason. But, yeah, if it costs a bit of extra money, that's fine. And you'll see how we put it up on my uh, on the Maiden, if anybody is really that bored and can't sleep, if you want to go onto that webpage and have a look, there's a GIF file on there on how we assembled the grid. Um, it's an animated GIF file, and it just shows, like, it's a poor man's movie. It's like 20 cells or something of just how the rig goes up. And we lifted the grid up on six super lifts, super, yeah, super lifts, not super towers. Put in a, a leg, a telestage triangular leg, solid leg. It wasn't on a sleeve block thing. And then pinned in a leg, took it up some more, pinned in a leg took, until it was 24 foot up. And then we landed it down on the bases and we basically had a table, really. That was the principle. That I mean, the, the, your mindset thinks, well, wow, that's got to be top heavy. But then you look, okay, well, tables don't fall over on their own. They're on four spindly legs and a, a lot of weight on top. They don't just mystically fall over. So why should this grid? And that was the principle of this grid. And then... We could hang, we hung the motors industrially in that grid so we could get pinpoint accuracy because we needed it where the trusses were flying in and out past each other. They need to be accurate. We couldn't get that accuracy flying from the roof, even if we could fly. Plus the fact there'd be swing involved and they could be swinging and banging into each other as well. So because this grid was so tight to the pods, there was no swing. We could get repeated accuracy, whether we ground support or flew every single day. So wow. there were 20, 24 motors underneath the grid that picked all the rig up, um, and we slammed those things in at you no know, waste level when the grid was at waste level, 
And then we crank the whole grid up, put them on the legs. And then the very last thing before lunch is just connect the pods, fly them up. That took 10 minutes. The main work was to get the grid up. But after that, the, the things went up and that was it. And it was pre-focused truss. It wasn't pre-rig truss. This was the precursor to pre-rig truss. So short nose cans inside a 30 inch by 20 inch truss. And we focused the rig once in Brixton at re rehearsals. And then we went off to Germany, Dusseldorf for more production rehearsals. And we locked off the lamps in Brixton and it was focused for what, 16 months to one focus. Nice. So yeah, I mean, Dickie Bell, the production manager, was like he'd wind up some of the union guys sometimes. Like, How many guys do you need to the focus? And hey, Diz, do you feel like focusing today? He said, you know, no, fuck it. No, we you gotta focus the rig, man. No, no, sometimes we just we just don't care. We don't want to we don't focus the rig and we don't tell the band and they don't know, and it's all good. You have to focus the rig, man. How many crew do you need after lunch to focus? No, I'll tell you, we we don't want it. We don't, we're not going to bother focusing today. We're tired. <laughs> and, and the IA guy, we go, these guys are fucking mad, man. <laughs> no, I got then, a bird I want to visit here. So I'm just going to bugger off today. Just Yeah. We've so, we got some shopping to do. Focusing is not that important. So <laughs> oh, we come up with loads of things. So Dickie Bell, production manager, he would go back and tell them later on, no, no, it's okay. It's all pre-done, but. The initial 10 minutes, he just let these guys are stupid, man. They just, they don't care about the show. Oh. <laughs> that was Especially when America, because these crazy drunk English guys go and tell Americans how to do rock and roll. They hate this. <laughs> <laughs> That's still a thing, still a thing to, to this day. Uh, yeah. No, that was good. And that was so, I mean, the, the grid thing was brilliant. And to my knowledge, it's the first, time that I, I, it was the first time i was aware of that anyone took a mother grid on tour that is All the that. very beginning of like a standardized touring setup then yep. I, that's what i think it was I, i'm not aware of anything and i've looked and i've not asked and i hadn't wasn't aware at the time of anyone else that took a mother grid up either a flown mother grid or as we did a ground support or flown so if we flew that same grid, we just didn't put the legs in. We just picked that whole grid up on six motors, six one-ton motors. We'd pick the whole thing up, and we'd have the 24 motors in the grid to pick up the rest of the lights. And in America, we made it a bit wider. We'd have two more motors off the grid, left and right, to make it the rig was another triangle wide. But it's the same amount of lights. We just positioned them differently. So England, uh, England and Europe didn't miss one light bulb compared to what America got. So it was that fulfilled the maiden's MO. And um, the drapes, they never had video then at the back. We I built a five-way tab track for, for that slavery tour. We had 10 drapes on it, what two per track. And Keith, uh, uh, the, one of the props and scenery guys, he would hang the drapes all the time. But it was five pieces of tab track on a, in five-foot sections joined together, and we just butt them up. And then we put five tab tracks together just under one truss. Um, and that was Vaden's, Maiden's back look. And it's still their back look. I saw them, what, 18 months ago in, in Oakland, and they still use drapes at the back. They're newer drapes, some of them. 
But it's the exact same thing. Their show hasn't really changed in, in the, the way that they operated in 40 years. Wow. And it works. I mean, they, they'll maybe have iMag video at the side for close-ups of guitar solos and stuff, but the actual scenery stuff is still done by painted drops at the back, which I think is brilliant. I mean, their video is canvas. Those, <laughs> those are the things that belong in museums nowadays. Oh, they've got they hundreds of them. So much me. effort. Yeah. They could have their own museum easily in the stuff they've got with all the edits and everything. But that was, a, that was a thing. Ground support was a big problem in England and Europe. When I first came over to America and all the arenas here, you could fly it. We even had a ground support at Wembley on ACDC, the back trusses. Um, that's where we came up with the Thomas ground support because we had to ground support at Wembley and we couldn't ground support it on anything that existed. So we invented it. <laughs> and that was on the same ACDC tour in 83. Look at the switch to it. It's actually in, in England, it was early, like January, February, 84, but it was the 1983 flick of the switch to it. Got and that's the, that was where the Thomas pre-rig came out for the first time. Going back and forth between uh, ground support and uh, flying a rig, when mm -hmm. did you start putting follow spots and people in the truss? Well, we did, not on... Oh yeah, we did on Maiden. We had uh, we had a front truss with underhung spots on in the states on Maiden in '83. Uh, no, '84. And on ACDC, we had like I think two truss spots on the back truss on in '83, and then we rose up to eight in one of the tours, like '86 or '87. We had eight truss spots, which were then had uh, a show changer in. We rented some from Eric Pierce and Bob Hughes that show lights. Uh, we had Altman, Altman Orbiters, which had a center boomerang arrangement for the color changer. We just pulled that out and we put in uh, one of Eric's show changers, Par 64 show changer in it and built a, a modified piece of metalwork to hold it. And then I ran the colors on that uh, from one of the show changers, um, Halliburton briefcases that they used to have for the color change system. So we could get, because there was, there was a lot of like fast <laughs> guitar solo stuff. And that was really, that was the first automated light that we had on ACDC for, God, up until I think that uh, we didn't do it anymore when Cosmos took over in the 1991, when they started having automated. But everything else was just park hands. We didn't have Intellibeams. It was static park hands. The only movers were the truss spots. Yeah. When we wanted to move lights, that's what we had to do. We had to hire a guy or yep. two to move those and, and listen to, 50, to our commands. To show and tell him to leave his wrench on the floor and send him upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> Make sure to pee first because you're going to be up there as long as playing. Yeah, we've all had those stories, right? Peeing in the chain bags and stuff because they couldn't hold it. <laughs> <laughs> we all overestimate how much how long we can hold it until we're up there in the yeah. rig and then we're like, oh, I was wrong. I yeah, there was one famous guy on Phil Collins and once they climbed up the rig, the thing, it was an in-the-round show, and then the, all the access to and from the rig was gone, and it was almost a three-hour show. Yeah, and about an hour in, one spot operator, house spot guy, just, I've got to go, I've got to go. Dude, there's no way, just 24 foot up, you can't jump. He just peed in the chain bag, the rigger was pissed. <laughs> anyway. 
Christ. <laughs> you clean the chain and the bag and have you I'm not touching it, man. Free moving lights, the only way to really set your or set a design apart from somebody else's was the trust placement and how many lights you could you could pack into a venue. Yep. That was pretty much it. And the more lights you could pack in a venue, the more options you had to make the show look different from either your last tour or someone else had just come past you, whether it was Dio or White Snake or Thin Lizzy or whatever. The cardinal sin, which then, which is still now, and it's still you don't want your show to look like anyone else's by accident or design. It's got to look different, right? Unlike PA, yeah. You know, twenty-four boxes left, twenty-four boxes right. Okay, we did that for Joan Jet. We we'll do it for White Snake. We we'll do it for Elton John. But Lane guys and, and everyone else has to come up with something that is different, even if it's the same band from last year. You've got to change it. But that makes it really difficult for archival purposes because, like you said, there's only a few photos. And if you don't want somebody to copy your plot, it's easy enough to just tuck that plot away and yeah. it'll never be discovered again. That, that was it. And I mean, it's literally, so I've got handfuls of photos over those six tours that I've already drawn up in 3D. The, 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 the main one on the Power Slave World Slavery Tour was the best documented photographically there's lots of good pictures of that but a lot of the other ones i mean i found two on an acdc tour and we were out for seven months on that two pictures that are worth a crap a lot of the pictures back then photography was like circus magazine they just like take pictures of the singer and the guitarist with a flash right got a good picture of them but the rest of the rig was all blacked out no you couldn't see anything because that was what cameras were back then no, nobody took their lugged their thirty-five mil camera around because it would get stolen, so or broken. So, Instamatics were crap, and you didn't have phones. So there was. <laughs> yeah, you and I are old enough to remember when taking your camera or any sort of recording device to uh, to a concert was was very prohibited. If you were oh, caught yeah. with a camera, you could be kicked out of the concert. Yep. And it, even if you work with the band, you know, they say, well, take like a like an Instamatic, you know, like a 110 film camera. But if you take you know, a professional one with a lens, like a 35mm one, even if it was a, 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 a sort of a, a domestic grade one, then the band would say, no, we don't want you doing that because you could be selling those or whatever. You may not put up with a good picture. We want pro photographers. So... I'm, I'm dare say a lot of people took photographs, but back then it wasn't a big thing to take photographs of the system and the rig. It was the people in it. You get close-ups of, right. of the band members. And maybe right. a bit of ancillary stuff of beams and smoke in the background, but not the whole big picture. And that's what I was looking for for some of these like moments before my grey cells completely got shot to hell. I was like, well, how do we do this? How do we, oh, I remember. But there's a couple of the rigs on there, which I couldn't remember how we, we answered some of the problems that we created for ourselves. But it was all about speed. The, the more, that was the thing about pre-rig and pre-rig on its wheels was that we could actually, on some things when we had uh, rolling stages, we'd build the lighting rig out of the way like they do now. And then the motors would get cranked up on the floor, not the stage. And then we'd wheel the lighting system in, put it put it into so we were out of the way of the riggers 
ASAP, we could go in at rigging call. And then the stage would get built up past us at the other end of the arena. Um, so, And then the PA would get kind of hung maybe at the sides. They could go in at the same time as us on some shows when it was just side stuff. And then the rigging would be clear. We'd wheel our lighting system in, connect it to the motors. It would already be cabled up. We'd pick it up like four feet, slide all the bars down and, and lift it up before lunch. And then we'd get out of the way and then the stage would get rolled in after, before dinner or before lunch. If we were a more clever species, we would have just taken the same innovation applied yeah. <laughs> to moving lights. And we could be done with a, a loadout in an hour. You know, yeah. we could put in 200 moving lights in an hour and be done. But instead, we took the we took the opposite path and we just started adding more and more. We decided that we could do more in less time. So we just added more work to it and we made even larger rigs. Yeah. Yeah. Mind you, if we were a smart species, we'd have... We just do one show and video it and stream it. <laughs> we wouldn't do the circus routine of driving it around from town to town kind of thing. To, yeah, give us lot. time. time Hell yeah. But it is a lot. It's a, it's a strange old business. But, I mean, it's I've enjoyed the hell out of it. Every day has been different. And I've been in it for over 40 years now, well over. And even in clubs and bars and stuff, there's something to learn even now with some of the newer stuff and just LEDs and Bluetooth and all that kind of stuff. It's, I wish I'd have had that when I was starting off in the seventies doing punk bands. It's been a, it's been yeah. a Instead of looking for power for two and a half hours in a pub. <laughs> Let's kind of explore that a little bit. Were there any innovations that you thought were going to become the standard that didn't? I'm thinking things like maybe square park hands or maybe instead of XLR, maybe any of the uh, number of competitors that uh, were competing with DMX. Are there anything that you thought was going to become standard that just got left because it was too expensive or too cumbersome? I don't really think so. Not as a thing. I mean, the, the Socopex connectors, like I was talking about earlier, there's um, between Socopex and, and Lytton, there was a, it was literally a VHS and a Betamax kind of competition and you were backing a horse as to which one was going to win. And you just hope right. you got the right one. Um, motors, they varied in England. We used to use Berlin motors, bright yellow things at the time that you could spot from like two zip codes away when they were hung. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> we figured out, oh, we better paint those black because they're kind of ugly. <laughs> that took us about four years to figure that out. Um, it's kind of hard to black out with the with 20 bright yellow motors above you. Yeah. I think everything really just kind of it found its own groove. I mean, Avo Light's high-density dimming was a big, big game-changer because um, right. you didn't need thumping great racks and lots of them, like LMIs and scrimmers and all those kind of things back in the, in the days, mainly in the States. But England, it was out of necessity because the trucks weren't as big, the venues weren't as big. And we were running 240 volts, so we could we could pump our, our modules with two par cans, 2K, and only pull 10 amps on that on that 2K load. So the voltage, you know, 240 to 120 difference helped a lot in England, and that enabled high density dimming. Right. Um, and then the pin patch, and then the uh, mains patch as well. Really, I mean, it was just different styles of truss or different desks, Selco desk versus Avo at the time for big rock shows. Right. 
Um, this is before any real automation. That was really when the, the big arms race started was automation. Once Berylite had their, they had a lock on it on as far as moving lights for, well, 10 years maybe, most right. of the 80s up into 1991. And then Intellibeam and a couple of others kicked, came on board and Joe Brown had his Starlight for a while too in the 80s, which I know he used on the police and a couple of other things. But um, yeah. Yeah, I don't think there was anything really I wish that had come on. I know that some of the – I remember very like tried uh, was a DMX 512A, which really? was, I don't really know what it was – how good it was going to be or what, but – I remember they were going to come out on that and they were going to release it and you could pay a, a royalty fee per year to use it. <laughs> right. And everyone to a man went, yeah, fuck that. That's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, no, we're not doing that. That lasted about yeah, three basically weeks. The, the console could talk to the lights and the lights could talk back to the console. And, to, and then we realized like, we don't really want to hear from the lights. We just want to tell them what to do. Yeah. We don't really want to listen to them at all. Yeah, we don't want feedback from you. If we, if you're not on, then we'll just kick you until you're on, and then that's good enough for us. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, I mean, on technology though, I think the level of technology that we've got with some, you know, twenty motors inside a moving light now, when you've got gobos and spinning wheels and spinning gobos and pan, tilt, zoom, and focus, and all the motors that we have in a moving light and some of the bigger moving lights, the fact that they work every day at all, I think is still not far short of a miracle. I really, no, we, we lose one. The logistics you know, are mind boggling. I mean, it really the is. The ones and zeros going back and forth. Yeah. If we put a yoke on a Sears washing machine and, and thumped it around like we do with, with gear and then expected it to work every day, it wouldn't work the amount of bashing that we give stuff in and out of the truck, in the side of the truck at now minus 20 to plus 80, 90, 100 degrees, thumping it up and down and dropping it and kicking it. And and it still works. No, it's just, and people go, oh man, we lost the light. Really? Just the one. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's still mind boggling that we used to need, you know, 10 moving light technicians on a, on a large show. And now that those numbers are dwindling because the lights just aren't breaking the way they used to. Yeah. Oh, I, I remember being on tours and we had 24 color changes and we had a tech just for them. He did nothing else, but you would have color to, changes. and you'd have like a 30% spares ratio to that too. If you had 24, you'd have eight spares and you may after halfway through the tour, you may have to send some back to the, to the base because you've run out of active spares anymore. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, this this kind of stuff, the technology we got is just absolutely phenomenal. And then the reliability of LEDs, you don't even have bulbs that go out now or go brown and stuff. Wow. No color changes. I mean, no hard gel color changes to worry about. You don't have to order your gel yep. a month out. And when you, oh yeah, you got confirmed on the rig. Oh, great. We got till tomorrow to come up with the color scrolls because we got a month and they're booked. Okay, uh, oh, I'll get back to you. Okay, uh, Lee one thirty eight. Uh, oh wait, wait, wait. Have you got them back? Yeah, we built them, dude. Oh, I wanted to change the blue. <sighs> Too damn late. <laughs> <laughs> well, can we go paler? Oh god. <laughs> so that's actually a perfect segue into my next question: is when 
everything was standardized, we used to be able to make phone calls to the rental company or the production house and say, look, I need this and I need it custom made. I need it in a week. I feel like we've lost a little bit of that these days. A lot of people are like, no, if you can't do it out of trust and with and the, the blocks that we have and some bases, then the cost to custom engineer that is going to be astronomical. I feel like we've lost a little bit of that these days. I think we have. I think that's because instead of making it yourself, like people used to do in the old days, especially some of the places like Eric with show lights, where he used to weld and cut, just like he still does, his own stuff in-house anyway. Uh, I know LSD used to do that, and Ronan at Meteorites had Charlie Kale, who was then became Brilliant Constructions. He was building drum risers and frames and racks and ladders and that kind of stuff too for Ronan. You had your own in-house guy or department that could actually do that stuff. And sometimes it was electronic, sometimes it was just welding, sometimes it was both. Now it's some places still have that, but you might as well just go to Thomas, Tomcat, Total, you know, all the T guys to make trust. Right. <clears throat> and they'll uh, they'll weld something up. But you need because they're a business, you've got to give them more lead time. So that can we have it tomorrow? No, there's those days are kind of gone for that. Yeah. But they, you can build a rig for tomorrow because we'll send a truck tomorrow and you'll confirm. All right, we got the plot. I'll get. To, I'll send it in a minute. That can happen. But if you needed like a ladder frame welded, you got to have four weeks for that. <laughs> so. Yeah, I think one thing that hasn't changed is that that is the services that are afforded to the big bands and not to anybody else. It's the the ones that have the money for that R and D that they're going to get the custom gear. Yeah, and especially I mean, some of the bigger tricks and gags that they got now with lifts and winches and hoists and trapdoors and all this kind of stuff. And we were doing it in the 80s in a, in a more, I don't know, we were adapting something to do something else, um, whether it's a trapdoor or um, making a rocket for Angus to jump out of the beginning of a show, you know, just a fiberglass rocket being able to pump through a stage and the end thing ended up being 15 foot high above a stage but it had to burst through a five foot high stage with angus in it so but i mean that was all done eric built that too for us um but then trapdoors for angus to come out and pop up and things for bruce and, and bill collins and had stuff done so it was put that same like tate and people like tate got his uh thing because he got really interested in building gags for people rather than putting lights up and he was good at it, and it just kind of worked. Yeah, I feel like there was an artistry to that one. It was definitely a craftsman who was would come up with an idea, and then they would develop it and see it all the way through to its end, and then they would actually go out on the road with it and see, like, yeah, it works. It's safe. It's safe for my yeah. artist. And oftentimes they'd have to go out with a welding set to production rehearsals and cut and grind and weld and, now, some of them still do from time to time if the lead time's there, but no, a lot of them now it's more it's more departmentalized. Um, yeah. <clears throat> if on a bigger tour, it was the lighting guys that would have to figure out the drum risers and the pyro and the drapes and the stage extension at the front with the monitor trough. The the lighting guys would have to figure that out in the early days. As I used to say, anything that doesn't make a noise is the lighting department's problem. You know. 
all of it. <laughs> Drum risers, stage extensions, the, the platform out front, the front of the house, the lighting guy and the sound guy. Um, it was all lumps, barricades, lumps on lighting guys because we knew what to do. Were they even called lighting guys or were they just called roadies then? Or you were just like, oh, you're no, coming out a, with us to do all the stuff we need. You're a roadie. Oh, no, it was, it was lighting guys. It was from okay. everything that I ever worked on. It may have been earlier on in the sort of dead era of the seventies, early seventies, but no, it was, it was that departmentalized, but <clears throat> basically sound okay. just put up cabinets, cabinets and microphones and that was it. And backline got up at about 11 to put up the guitars and drums. And we were up at seven to, get our stuff around a rigging call to start hanging at eight. First one's in last one's out. As we say, yep. exactly. No, I used to, I used to get a kick out of doing the idiot check after my shower and just being the last person in the venue before I got on the bus, just doing the walk yep. around the stage just to see who's forgotten their tails. And <laughs> yep. Here, somebody left a drum kit. We're going to have to yep. figure out what it goes. <laughs> my favorite was we had a sound company that would forever leave their tails under the stage upstage center probably once a week they would do that and we got them to give us a bottle of brandy or we tell their boss <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you keep losing four man you can't keep chopping tails like that yeah and a, a, a case for the mic stands was the biggest one I think that I found yep that was fun to get in the bay of a bus <laughs> For them. All the time. <laughs> yeah, and I wish we had cameras with you know, phones with cameras, like because I could have that would have been a YouTube moment for sure. And that would have gone viral, but that was way before yeah, that yeah. that level. Dizzy, I could easily carry on this conversation for, for another hour, but we're just about the at the end. So I wanna I wanna kind okay. of close with one of the questions I think I, I I enjoy asking the most, and especially for somebody of your experience. The roadie lifestyle of the 80s and 90s were definitely very pirate times. You know, it was it was definitely a, a more rock and roll lifestyle where things were a little bit less corporate. Nowadays, mm-hmm. uh, we're we're able to sustain a little bit easier out on the road because things have been a little bit more corporatized. We all have some protections. We have a little bit of safety. We have some sort of contracts. Do you feel like that we've made rock and roll better and more sustainable, or have we just ruined the essence of the rock and roll lifestyle? I think we, I think ultimately we've done both. I mean, the sort of the pirate way is is yeah, it's a good analogy because we were just up. We, some didn't know what we were doing. What are you going to do? Go up there? You're going to hang a point? Oh, how do you do that? Well, okay, you wrap your spans. Okay, you're now the rigger on that on that tour, and I was doing that. <laughs> but congratulations, then, you're a rigger. What's a rigger? Yeah. You are. <laughs> you know, one end of a shackle from another. Good, you're an expert. <laughs> um, but the, uh, but I think it made it better though, because I mean, there were some definitely. I mean, we've all all heard those stories, but there was loads of things of. I mean, even if it's just a driving, you know, the truck drivers doing 24-hour runs and stuff and fake logbooks and all that stuff in those days and going up, I mean, no harnesses, nobody had a harness, hard hats or high-vis or any of that stuff, nothing. I think the first time I ever remember seeing a hard hat on the road was, at, I think it was at Thomas and Mack Centre, probably about 1990, I think it was. Las Vegas. 
Yeah, I think it was. Yeah. That's, and I was going, wow, what's, don't these guys trust us? And that was the mentality. You know, we're going to drop a shackle on your head. Yeah, well, we don't trust it. We don't know yet. So, so that was the, and we were thinking, wow, it's kind of weak. But as it got more legit and we realized that there was, there was a consequence if we didn't do these kind of things and you're kind of playing with fire, you know, kind of like not metering your power. Yeah, nine times out of 10, it's going to be great. But that one time can, that one time it screws up can really affect the show. And I think as... Yeah, we have very selective memories. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, those were the good old days. And they were, but there were also a lot of scary ones too. Whether it was barricades that kept collapsing all the time because they just put a a bike rack barricade at the front of the stage and the thing buckled in two minutes because it didn't have any bracing. And I was forever fixing barricades for people, just putting truck ramps up and ratchet strapping the middle so it... It didn't collapse in when the band went on stage and there was a surge. And, yeah, I was forever doing that and getting bottles of brandy and bottles of Jack Daniels from the promoter for fixing these driftwood barricades that they used to put up. <clears throat> but, um, but, yeah, I mean, it was and rigging and how accurate is our weight of the rig and how accurate is the strength of the rig that they're giving us, the roof that they're giving us the capacity on and, generators that we would lock up in, re- in re- the afternoon because they send a massive Ferguson tractor with no wheels, and that was a generator for a, an 800-lamp show. We go, yeah, right. So you just hit the bump button three times and lock it up and get a real one in an hour. I had a couple of production managers. Hey, dears, we've got a generator in this. a joke. Can you break it? All right. Yeah, and just hit the Hit the encore song, specials, <laughs> bump, 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 and just break it because it had no turbo, couldn't keep up. So it's broken. It yeah, looks like I it's mean, broken. I, ah, I meant to say it's not broken yet. <laughs> the classic one, the, the thing, well, this is not going to work. Well, we had Kiss here last week and it was good enough for them. I don't know how many Parkans Kiss had, but I know for this rig, it's not going to work. We would all, you probably did too. Well, we had White Snake here last week and it was fine for them. I don't fucking care about what they had. This is not going to work. Yep. Yeah, for me, always. it was always haze. It was haze. Yeah. I would always go in and on some of my artists and be like, no haze. And they were, ah, we had Hall and Oates here last week and they were fine with haze. I'm like, oh, yeah. fuck. <laughs> Stevie's not cool with haze, so no haze. Yeah, yeah exactly. No, there's a, a ton of those things and. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a whole different section on its own. You get three lighting sound guys talking about, well, when we had so-and-so here last week, they were, it was all good for them. <laughs> like, yeah, production managers, give me an just break it, this. All right, yep. So let's go out front of the house. And with a couple of bump buttons, you could break a generator. I used to love love that thing. If it was a crap Jenny, you know, and they lie to you. Yeah, it's like, hey, I would rather it break before the show than during the show. So yep. here, watch, watch. Here's something I'm going to do during the show, and it's going to break it. So well, one of our, one of our, oh, it was in Omaha where this particular one, and I just thought, went out to the promoter. I said, you know what? John Deere doesn't make fucking generators, man. <laughs> it's, it was literally, it was, a, it was a tractor with no wheels on it put on a flatbed, <laughs> hooked up to an alternator, and I was like, nah, this is... It may be good for a water pump for a field, but it's not good enough for rock and roll. <clears throat> yeah, watch me break it. I'm about yeah, to break yeah. it. Yeah. Yep. Better get something new now because uh, you we got three hours. We can play around with it. If it goes the first song, you got a right on your hands, dude. <laughs> 
Wow. And that's what we used to say. He said, no, we're doing this for your benefit so the kids don't kill you. You go, what? Well, the first song, the lights go out and we've got no alternative. You're fucked. <laughs> your answer to 18,000 sweaty denim heads? Go for it. <laughs> I'll just point, yeah, it was him. <laughs> When I when I think of the the stories, the artists and the roadies back then, you know, causing a fuss, it wasn't because they were unreasonable. It's because they were the most reasonable. They're like, no, yeah. we 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 advanced this, and you guys did not provide what we do to provide. So we're gonna cause a fuss. And yep. uh, the sooner you <clears throat> listen to us, the sooner we're gonna get the show done. Otherwise, we're gonna we're gonna toss some TVs or we're gonna break some generators. Yeah. And I mean, it still happens, not as much as it did in the old days, <clears throat> but it still happens now. Well, do you think you could pick this truss up on two points? Yeah, well, we can give it a shot, but I know that gravity is going to want to have a word and it'll just say, all right, fuck you. Gravity yeah. will always win. If, yeah, well, right if on. Wanna... well, thank you so much for your time, Dizzy. Well, I, I hate you, to cut Chris. you short there, but uh, yep. this is, I'm going to leave a link to some of this gorgeous artwork. It's uh, Disney's personal website. You can go look at uh, all of the the digitized versions of history. They are amazing. Uh, I wish that uh, these were available back then, and I wish these could be archived and, and presented in a, in a museum somewhere. They are amazing. Well, if you and also um, you can right click on them and save them. I haven't put any protections on them, so if you want to right click and save and zoom in, you can do that. They're full size JPEG, so they're not compressed down or anything. So if anyone wants open to get, source um, history, just laying right in front of us. It's not. It's not. It's not like I'm going to earn money off of it. If I oh no, you can't download it. So you kids get off my lawn. Nah, use it. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, Dizzy. I appreciate Thanks it. You're welcome, Chris. Thanks a lot. <laughs>